0: This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from Health Ed, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Do you want to finally read a sleep study report and actually know what it means and not just rely on the specialist's conclusions this podcast is a must for all GPs who send patients off for a sleep study and help the patients get the most from the results. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Dr. Anub Desai. Dr. Desai, tell us
1: about yourself. Hi, David. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a sleep and respiratory physician. I've, um, I've been out in clinical practice for a long time. I initially did Uh, research work. I did a PhD in sleep medicine and did some postdoctoral work in England. Uh, A lot of my research was along the lines of sleep apnea and driving. More recently, I'm predominantly a clinician. I work at Prince Wales Public Hospital. I work at Sydney Sleep Centre in the city and in in Ramwick in private rooms. Um, So my main expertise is in sleep disorders. I do a lot of sleep disorders management as an outpatient. Probably 98% of my patients would be sleep. And it's a broad range of sleep conditions, not just snoring or sleep apnea. I will look at restless legs, insomnia, narcolepsy, um, parasomnia, sleep sex, the weird and wonderful. All of that comes to my rooms regularly.
0: Dr. Desai, in today's podcast, we would really like to just focus on um, the sleep study, the results of a sleep study and how to interpret it. First of all, what does really a sleep study show?
1: So David, a sleep study is essentially a measurement of a whole lot of different um, physiological parameters in sleep. As you know, patients are have maybe 10 to 12 leads placed while they're asleep. So for a laboratory sleep study, which is what we call a level one sleep study, it would be something like that. A level two sleep study, which is a home-based sleep study, so there's still quite a lot of leads. Then we have what's called level three and four home-based sleep studies, which just have two or three leads. So in general, what I'm gonna talk about is level one and two sleep studies, which are the most common sleep studies and arguably the ones that give us the most information. They're the ones that have Medicare rebates in Australia, health fund rebates. So let's just concentrate on on what's been accepted by the government as as reasonable, useful, valid testing. So the level one or laboratory-tended sleep study is in a sleep laboratory in a hospital or a a non-hospital environment and the level two or home-based sleep study is at home, but with multiple recording leads. So what are we recording? So we're recording brain EEG. So there's lots of electrodes on the scalp that look at the brain waves so we can tell whether a person's awake or asleep. With the EEG leads, we can also tell which stage of sleep they're in. Are they in REM sleep or are they in non-REM sleep? And that can be useful to assess certain sleep conditions that might arise out of particular stages of sleep such as REM behaviour disorder, where people act out their dreams, happens in REM, and sleepwalking and, and sleep terrors, and things will happen out of non-REM sleep. In addition to measuring sleep um, EEG, the other parameters that are measured are airflow and breathing measurements, of course, because one of the key outcomes of a sleep study is measuring obstructive sleep apnea and breathing disorders in sleep. So there's usually a little cannula in the nose, like the oxygen cannulas, but there's no oxygen going through it. That cannula sits inside the nose and measures pressure or airflow, and we get a sense of whether or not someone stopped breathing or not from that cannula. There's bands across the chest, what we call respiratory bands, that measure that respiratory excursion. When you breathe in and out, your chest and the abdominal walls move in and out, and we measure that, and that tells us if they're making effort to breathe, and that helps us differentiate between central apnea and obstructive apnea. Mm-hmm. We measure oxygen saturations in sleep. Um, if someone stops breathing in their sleep, and the airway blocks off, their oxygen will fall, and we like to see that, and that gives us some idea of severity of their problems too. We measure eat, measure ECGs in sleep because when a person wakes up from an apnea event, when there's a sudden arousal in sleep, not only does their brain wake up, you get what's called a cardiac arousal, the pulse rate and blood pressure goes up, and that's some of the reasons why these people might get arrhythmias. We measure body position because, as you know, certain conditions are worse in different positions, in particular snoring and obstructive sleep apnea are often worse on the back. And we measure things like leg movements, which may be important for period limb movement condition or restless legs syndrome. So there's a lot of the different parameters that we're measuring. There's a quite involved a sleep study. Most people will describe it as uncomfortable, to be fair, mm. um, whether done at home or in a laboratory. They're both good tests. At home, of course, the patient does it. The lab, the technicians will do it
0: if a patient has to put on multiple leads at home with no one there, what's the chance
1: that they get it wrong? Um, ab- absolutely, they can get it wrong. So there's a whole lot of different ways home sleep studies seem to be done now. It's quite interesting. So one model is the patients go to the sleep clinic or sleep office, wherever they're going to be set up, and they're set up in the office, or and then they take they go home like that, and wear it that night. Um, I, I personally find that that is a, I, I find that hard to compute because I, I worry about how all the leads are going to fall off over the next few hours over dinner and all the rest of it when they're driving. <laughs> and I, I, I fail to appreciate how that gives really good data, but it is very much an accepted way of doing things. And I'm sure lots of people get great data. There's another method where, in fact, these sleep studies are posted out to patients. So I see that happening. And again, I think some of the data is often reasonable because these people, you know, are obviously doing these tests all the time. In our particular clinic, we show them how to use the equipment and they take it home in a bag and they put it on that night time and they've got videos to use and and various resources they can draw on. So there's different ways for people to put on all these leads. It sounds quite complicated, but to be honest, patients do a pretty good job. They always surprise me how well they do. We personally repeat about one in seven. Um, We want to repeat a study. If there's not enough data, if they didn't record properly, something falls off. Um, we always ask the patients to repeat it. They, we obviously won't charge them a second time. We want to repeat it. We want to get good data. I always say to the patients, look, it might be a bit annoying to do a second time, but clearly it's the right thing to do. So I think based on at least our experience in, in fairly good experienced hands, we're repeating about one in seven um, of these comprehensive tests. So if that gives you some some idea. So let's move on to how
0: you know the difference between, so I'm a GP the result of, say, a home study comes back to me. How can I tell if this test is well done or need to repeat?
1: Yeah, that, that's a very good question. So I'd probably say three things to that. One, we listen to the patient. Two, we look at the hypnogram. And three, we look at the overall clinical picture. So let me go through each of them. So patients will often give you some idea of what they thought of the test that night. And they might say something as simple, you know what, this thing in my nose, it wasn't on all night or the oxygen signal, that thing on the finger was really annoying, I just took it off, or half the leads fell off. So when they say that, I think it's really important to listen to that because they're they're telling you really important information that may become extremely relevant. And sometimes some of these things are missed and the report just gets processed by whoever, and there's a conclusion there. And if if the patient hadn't volunteered that, you'd be none the wiser. So so clearly the patient who's just spent eight hours with this on them can tell you what's going on. Um, But look, I think... Um, the next really important thing is to look at the hypnogram. So I'm going to come back to that because we want to do that together in this podcast. But aspect three um, is more qualitative. And that is, obviously, let's go back to why we did the sleep study. So if a person's excessively sleepy, you've got a BMI of 35, lots of symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea. And they've come back to you with this report and it says no apnea. Mm hmm. You know, you're starting to think, wow, well, that's not what I expected. How has this guy not got apnea? Mm -hmm. Again, you're going to have to use a bit of clinical acumen there and clinical um, experience to think, well, maybe that test wasn't right for whatever reason. This is a bit of a red flag. You know, what am I going to do? I'm going to do it again. I'm going to send them to someone, get another opinion. So I think the final, um, if you like, the final standard that they need to pass these tests is is how does it fit in the clinical picture? Um, (laughs) So one and three are, you know, things that you'll work out. But let's let's spend a bit of time if we can on the hypnogram because I yes. the hypnogram is what I'm going to explain. I know I'm using a technical term, but I think it's the most useful and interesting part of a sleep study report. So with a sleep study report, I think you've got two pages you want to look at, the front page and the back page. The front page has various summary clinical information. It has a conclusion at the bottom signed off by a sleep physician usually. You'll be all very familiar with that. The back page is usually the graph, what I call the hypnogram. So, so when I say hypnogram, what it is, it's a summary of the whole night um, with all the different measurements displayed across the page. So you've seen it, I'm sure. The top level is stages of sleep. The next one often is like oximetry trace. Then below that, there's whether they've got apneas, hypopneas, or an arousal index, leg movements, snoring. So it's that whole page of graphical data. And that's really important to look at. That is actually the information that patients love to see because when you're explaining the sleep study and going through that page, um, you're starting to show them what happened that night and they're starting to reference it to what happened. And then they're going to have confidence, of course, in your opinion and that test result. Because from their point of view, they've just attached a whole lot of stuff overnight and they've got no feedback at all. I don't even know if it recorded, doctor. Did it give us anything useful? So you look at the hypnogram. Now, the hypnogram, what it has at the bottom is is your time points. It'll say... It started recording at, say, 9 p.m. and stopped recording at, say, you know, 7 a.m. And then the, the top part of the hypnogram will tell you the different stages of sleep that they went through and whether they were awake or asleep. So at that point in time, if the patient said to you, look, I was awake half the night, if the hypnogram says that, you're already starting to think, oh, my God, maybe I haven't got enough information with this test. The next part of the hypnogram that's really useful, I think, is looking at the oxygen trace. Um, so the oxygen trace is your pulse oximetry. And as you know, people's oxygen levels overnight should generally be between about 96 and 100% mm-hmm. like they are during the day. But when people have conditions like obstructive sleep apnea or central apnea or breathing problems in sleep, their oxygen levels drop. Now, when you look at that oxygen trace and you see lots of drops in the oxygen level um, linked to the arousals and hypopneas, well, that's, that's clearly the apnea, the sleep apnea demonstrated. And you can show them that on the graph. But going back to the technical aspects, how do you know you've got a good result? I think this is really important because sometimes that oximetry trace is absent for a third Mm -hmm. of the night or for a period, or it's dropped out and bottomed at zero for half an hour. Well, that tells you there was a problem with that trace. It wasn't fitted properly. It came off during the night and we're losing data. And sometimes what happens is you get oximetry drift. So the things on the finger, but it's a bit loose and it's not recording properly just like you might do an oximetry in your rooms and it takes you two minutes to get the right signal, well, that can happen overnight and that right signal doesn't happen for hours on end. And what you'll do then is record low oxygen levels that didn't exist and start to think that people had sleep apnea that didn't exist. So from a technical perspective, if you look at how much sleep they got on the night and look at what their oxygen levels kind of did that night, you might get a sense of whether there might have been some technical flaws in the study. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also very useful information for the patients. While we are talking about
0: the um, desaturation, Anup, uh, when is a level that is so low that a GP should go, oh, my gosh, I'm really worried?
1: It, it's a hard question to answer because the levels of oxy- oxygen drops in sleep that we allow are far below what we would accept during the day. So, okay. for instance, I, my own personal grading of oxygen drops I will give you Um, Because, again, this is not well documented at all in the sleep literature or guidelines. But for me, a mild drop in oxygen overnight is down to 88%. Right. It's down to 80%. And severe is below 80%. Okay. Those numbers could be staggering. And if you think about um, daytime respiratory failure, so if a person's got severe lung disease, let's say severe pulmonary fibrosis, and their daytime oxygen saturation is below 90%, we've (laughs) got them on home oxygen. 24 seven right whereas yeah. I'm saying to you in sleep you can have 89 percent and I'm just calling it a mild drop okay so it, it takes a little bit of a head twist but but essentially to answer your question below 88 percent if you like I think is a moderate drop and certainly below 80 percent is very low and I've okay. seen people you know down to 40s and even 20s percent thank but-
0: you that that helps me all right let's move on to the next bit because we're looking at the
1: oximetry trace what's the next So the oximetry trace will be an important um, variable to to give you an idea of what's happened that night, give you an idea of the severity of the apnea and whether there might have been technical problems. Mm -hmm. Below the oximetry trace in that that hypnogram, there's usually measurements or little marks that um, indicate apneas or hypopneas. Um, So you'll be able to see the frequency and the distribution of when they've stopped breathing in their sleep. And it might correlate, for instance, to when they're on their back or when they're in REM sleep or, you know, different aspects of sleep. I think an important quality tool here is to make sure they've spent some time on their back during their sleep study. The reason why I say that is some people have sleep apnea or even snoring that's just positional. So it's just on their back or almost exclusively on their back. And in my younger years, I think I was fooled by the odd patient that would come back with a normal sleep study and they hadn't slept on their back. but. The reality is they'll come back two years later with the same symptoms, you'll do another study, suddenly they're on their back and you go, oh my God, look at all the apnea. Right. An important quality tool is make sure they've spent a little bit of time on their back. And if they haven't spent time on their back, just be mindful, maybe we missed a bit of apnea. So again, if that guy's excessively sleepy, AHI of five, didn't spend any time on their back, or did we miss the apnea because they didn't go on their back? Ah. Now, these things should also be picked up in the report. So don't worry. A good sleep physician, will be thinking about this too. And they'll usually um, say, you know, mild apnea, lack of supine. I usually write mild apnea, lack of supine sleep, may have missed positional sleep apnea, something like that. So we should be picking up on this kind of stuff too when we report it. We should be saying the limitations of a test report. The patient was only slept three hours the sleep was very fragmented there was oximetry drift there was oximetry artifact all these things should be reported they're going back to how do you know you got a good study well if they're writing stuff like that all the time you know they're looking at it properly very easy to look for certain people perhaps to look report many many sleep studies sequentially and, and and not spend that much time on it and and generate some fairly um fairly typical reports but you really got to try to pick up these technical flaws, write some comments around them, what was limited, what didn't work. And if you're seeing that kind of stuff all the time or they're saying, look, go and repeat the test because it was technically flawed, that's what you want to hear from your patients. That's what you want to hear from your providers. Do you know what I mean? So, I hear it. Um, so, so I think that's really important. And what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to do is, is just show you the kind of things that can go wrong in these tests. So you can start to keep your ears open. Did this happen? Did it not? Well, why didn't it happen? Why doesn't none of my patients come back and say they repeated a test? Surely the last 50 tests can't be all perfect. Do you know what I mean? Um,
0: A quick question. Um, The patient lying supine is
1: actually seen on which graft? So usually it's on the hypnogram, the the back page. There's usually positional data. Sorry, I didn't mention that before. There's often a position and it'll say, S for supine, R for right, L for left, or the the abbreviation. So sometimes B for back. So, yeah, you can usually see that they've moved different positions. And patients want to see all that too because they'll say, oh, yeah, I was on my back most of the time or or I was on my side and I always sleep on my back. And these are discussion points. And, and again, you're just trying to formulate a clinical picture of you got an accurate result or not. Because remember, we've just taken a snapshot of one night. It it may not be perfect in, in its own sense, right?
0: I've already learned about a thing I've never looked at in my life, which is amazing. Now, could you very quickly touch
1: on the difference between apneas and hypopneas? So apnea is complete cessation of airflow in their sleep. So what happens is their airway is blocked off completely. There's no airflow at all for a minimum of 10 seconds. And their brain's either woken them up or their oxygen's fallen. And that's what we score. That's what we mark as an apnea event. And as you know, we, we add up the number of apnea events per hour of sleep, and that's part of the apnea hypopnea index. The hypopnea, on the other hand, is not complete cessation of airflow. It's a reduction in airflow, but they're still breathing a little bit. But the point is their oxygen still drops while their brain still wakes them up. So mm-hmm. they're still out the same outcome physiology. In other words, they're still at the same um, poor sleep because of the hypopnea as they have from, as they have from the apnea and that's why the apnea hypopnea index is joined together because there's not really any physiological distinction from a clinical perspective it doesn't really matter if they're apneas or hypopneas at the okay. end of the day we just we have a composite number as you know and that we always look at that number
0: let's talk about the ahi then uh, tell
1: us about it so the ahi is a is the number of apnea or hypopnea events per hour of sleep so it's an average number and it's derived from a technician going through that you know six, eight-hour sleep study, looking at every 30-second period and marking periods where someone stopped breathing completely or they reduced their breathing and they had an arousal or an oxygen drop. Um, and then it's, it's, it's tabulated and you get this number. As you know, the severity of sleep apnea is often determined by the, the AHI number. So we say up to five is normal. Five to 15 AHI is mild obstructive sleep apnea moderate obstructive CPAP is 15 to 30 and more than 30 is severe. So they're the broad reference ranges. Now, I, I say this cautiously, but the the AHI is just a, a number and and, and the, the, the value of that number depends a little bit on how carefully the data has been looked at and scored and um, whether it's computer generated, whether it was manually corrected and the concordance between different people in in good institutions for these numbers is not amazing to be fair so that is one of the challenges i'm afraid wow. to say that um when they do concordance studies of ahi between many different operators good operators bad operators the best different people you know it's not always great so that is one of the challenges you just look at it a number and again it goes back to what i i'm afraid i just say to you constantly dave and i feel i'm boring you but it, this is not, this whole of sleep medicine is not about one number. It's about the clinical picture because that number can be flawed. And if someone's just not scoring as diligently as they did yesterday, then that number is going to be lower than it was yesterday. If someone's scoring too diligently, the number's going to be higher. And to add to that, I'm afraid to say, David, there's different criteria for what defines an apnea or hypopnea. Vigorously debated is a 3% desaturation, is it a 4% desaturation? Do they need the arousal and the desaturation or do they need one or the other? And each of those variables affects that final number. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. This is the truth. I I have to tell you, I had no idea that
0: somebody had to correlate all the apneas with the desaturations uh, and and the stages of sleep. It actually surprises me how much work goes into preparing that result and we've always been told, you know, the value of an ultrasound is probably as good as the operator. Uh, we're feeling the
1: same here. Is that right? It, to, to some extent. And and another um, really interesting, I think, aspect of sleep studies, patients always ask or love to ask, and I'm sure you would love to know, you know, oh, how long did I stop breathing for? You know, and, and then there's a number on the report that talks about length of apnea, hypopnea. Mm-hmm. And, The challenge there is it really depends how carefully the technician has marked every event. And because let's say there was a period where the flow wasn't good and they just marked it as one long apnea. It might look like they've stopped breathing for three minutes but they kind of didn't really dissect out that three minutes properly. Or let's just say on the other hand, they've got the habit of marking the apneas a bit shorter than the next person. Then the overall average hypopnea duration will be less than the next person. So again, to some extent, that longest apnea, or the average apnea duration is dependent on the diligence or the habits of that technician um if I can I'm not trying to be negative here, but I'm just trying to say that you know we often regard all these numbers as absolutes. Oh my God, I stopped breathing for two minutes. yeah why am I still alive? or well, you know what? Maybe it was just a fact that it was actually forty seconds, but we kind of. The data wasn't good for a minute twenty, and it just happened to score at two minutes. So, look, I think it's important, obviously, to use that information to patients and show it to them, but just keep it the back of your mind. Sometimes there's there's limitations in this information.
0: But what I'm hearing, therefore, is um, to go for a I wouldn't know what word to use, but a clinic where you can trust. Here's the difficulty. Can we trust all sleep physician clinics? Uh, if so, uh, does it therefore also mean that we have to be a little bit more careful in interpreting level two studies from other places?
1: There's a there's a range. Essentially, all the level two sleep studies are reported by a sleep physician. OK. So it's hard to know what we can therefore call a sleep physician clinic. Can we trust all of them? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'd like to say no there. I'm afraid. Okay, because yeah. it, it seems to be screaming at me.
0: But thank you for really taking us through that. Because um, I, for one, would have taken that number with gospel truth. You know,
1: look, there's a lot of there's a lot of utility there. Not to take it away, it's a really important number. But we just need to understand there can be a bit of variability. There can be a bit of error. And this is again where we need to put our clinical hat on. And, okay. and maybe you just need to repeat the study in a year if it doesn't make sense. You know, yep. you've got to keep an open mind. So what's the next thing we've got to look at? Um, I think the key things really would be the AHI or the RDI. I can spend a little bit of time describing those two, Mm -hmm. the difference between Mm -hmm. those numbers. The minimum oxygen saturation we've talked about Mm -hmm. and we've talked about the hypnogram. I think they're the, the, the front page and the back page are the key things. So let me talk about the RDI and why it's different to the AHI and then perhaps we can talk about whether some of the other individual tables in the report are useful. So I've talked about the AHI, the number of apneas per hour of sleep and the hypopneas per hour of sleep, and they're combined to form one number. There is this um, often seen as an interchangeable term, RDI. Mm -hmm. So um, You've probably heard both, and reports often tend to use one or the other. Sometimes they have both. But it's almost put forward in many of the reports that they're the same essentially numbers, but they're actually not. So what Mm -hmm. the RDI does is it measures more than the AHI. So the RDI measures this thing called upper airway resistance syndrome or or subclinical arousals. So sorry, I'm getting a bit technical here, but there's a third measurement that goes into the RDI. So the RDI or respiratory disturbance index has the apneas and has the hypopneas, just like the AHI does. Mm-hmm. But it also has a third variable. So this goes back to what I said before about there's debate about how to score sleep studies, about how to mark an event. So There's a group of patients that we feel that are excessively sleepy during the day and they have have lots of brain arousals overnight. But if we take the standard 10-second definition of lack of flow with an oxygen drop of 3%, for instance, they're not picked up by that parameter. Mm -hmm. This is what the RDI tries to get out. So what it's trying to identify is people that have lots of brain arousals and the arousals occur because of snoring but not quite the level of oxygen drop or airflow drop of a hypopnea. So it's like a sub-criterion or a subtle hypopnea, and that number goes into the RDI. Now, I know that's very confusing, but I guess the point is to say the RDI measures a different kind of arousal that um, some sleep physicians feel is very important in in predicting sleepiness the next day. I think from a GP perspective, it's fair to say just uh, just take them as interchangeable AHI, RDI, and take the same severity scales 0 to 5, 5 to 15, 15 to 30, more than 30, because a lot of physicians do anyway. Mm. And a lot, of, a lot of the differences come down to is, you know, do the technicians actually score that extra sleep parameter, how diligent they score it, that kind of thing. Um, but it is worth trying to explain that there is a difference between those two mm. um, variables because they're definitely written down differently, and I know it's a bit confusing that different factor, but I think from a GP level, just regard them as roughly the same. I I want to now briefly
0: touch on ECG changes, especially as you said on awakening, what are the common ones? And when do we need to actually go on to uh, investigate arrhythmias?
1: Sleep studies probably aren't that great at picking up arrhythmias. What what we tend to see is when a person wakes up from sleep, there's a tachycardia. Mm -hmm. And when they have an apnea event, there's a bradycardia. We really only have very limited ECG traces, so we'll often see things like AF going on, but we're not usually picking up solid arrhythmias, or, or to be a very diligent sleep physician that's that's looking at every ECG line and picking up the all the arrhythmias. Mind you, we're supposed to report them in the report, and you will see a, a comment along the lines regarding ECG. Um, but perhaps what we could do, David, is look at some of the other parameters in the sleep study report we've talked mm-hmm. about page one which is the conclusion which talks about mild moderate or severe apnea usually based on the AHO or RDI number we've talked about the minimum oxygen saturation that will come out on the front page we've talked about the hypnogram at the back page and all that graphical information that gives you an idea of what happened and perhaps if you start to look at it you'll start to learn more and more about it with time and it is fairly self-explanatory I think but in the middle of that sleep study report there's often a whole bunch of tables there's tables that summarize arousals, there's tables that summarize sleep time, sleep latency, there's tables that summarize leg movements, there's tables that summarize positional data, mm-hmm. tables that summarize respiratory data. So I need to be careful here because it gets very technical and there's possibly too much information for GPs, um, but I guess I'll put it back to you. What sort of information do you think you know might be useful um, in that middle part of the report that we should be discussing with the GPs?
0: Well, I think to me, the first one that's important is what are the things I should know about, if you like, the sleep time uh, that makes this report valid? You know, you did say, I wonder if they slept enough. So that's the first one. Uh, The second is sleep latency. Uh, Is this arousal related to Um, Ram sleep or something that I should be aware of? Is there particularly a type of latency that I should be aware of as a GP? Uh, The position you've mentioned that we need to see that they've spent time on their back. Uh, We briefly mentioned respiratory data. So I I guess it now comes down to you teaching us about, you know, uh, time and latency.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, let me me tell you a few things that I think are important along those areas. So um usually we're recording a patient for at least eight hours as part of a sleep study. That's, that's basically I think what Medicare defines as well. And what we like to see is at least four hours sleep. And most people get more than that. They usually get between about four and eight hours, to be honest, um, often about six-ish hours of sleep. So we like to see at least four hours as a bit of a rough um, rough figure. So in the in those tables that I talked about on page two, or maybe it's page one, you'll often see um, total sleep time. That tells you how many hours they've slept. You will also see um, time in bed or total recording time. And that tells you how long it recorded for. So let's say they slept for four hours, total sleep times four hours, but total recording time or total bedtime was eight hours. Mm -hmm. Um, That means they've been awake for four hours and they were asleep for four hours when it was being recorded. That brings up another figure that you see a lot on these pages called the sleep efficiency. So patients always go to that figure and they say, what's that? I've got a high sleep efficiency. Does that mean I'm really good? So the sleep efficiency is simply that ratio of the amount of sleep they had relative to the recording time or the time in bed when they were asked to sleep. So in that example, I gave you the sleep efficiency is 50%. Um, So that's already telling you that they've been awake a lot of the time the recording equipment was on. So what you're looking for is is a good number of hours of sleep. And what you're also hoping is the sleep efficiency levels at least 80%. So most of the time that we were recording sleep, they were asleep. So so they're probably two parameters that are useful. Mm -hmm. The other thing you like to know is that they got all the different stages of sleep. Did they get enough REM sleep? Did they get enough slow-wave sleep? So usually we like to see at least 10% REM sleep and at least 10% slow-wave sleep in a sleep study. And there's little um, tables at the start that'll tell you the amount of REM sleep and slow wave sleep that they had or slow wave is stage three sleep and what percentage of the night that was. Again, all these things, you don't need to worry too much yourself as a GP because if these things are lacking or wrong or not enough, it's usually co- commented on on that front page report. We'll say um, there was reduced REM sleep seen. And we might say in our conclusion, mild obstructive sleep apnea, lack of REM sleep may have underestimated severity, things like that. We should be writing. So, but yeah, you're looking at total sleep time. You're looking at sleep efficiency. You're looking at the amount of REM sleep, amount of slow wave sleep. Yeah, We'd like to to see people have slept on their back in REM sleep because Ah. REM sleep, they're more likely to have apnea on their back. They're more likely to have apnea and that can be a very vulnerable time. So again, we're looking for things like that. And we might be commenting on that in a, in a sleep study report. Probably the other important bit of data, I think, in the tables is to look at the respiratory arousal table and the leg movement table. So I'll just cover those two because they're probably the only two ones of relevance. The respiratory arousal table will show you a breakdown of all the different types of breathing events that cause them to wake up. And this is where you draw the distinction between obstructive sleep apnea and maybe central apnea. So obstructive sleep apnea, as you know, is a blocked upper airway in sleep causing their brain to wake up central apnea which is another sleep condition that causes sleepiness and sleep disturbance is a lack of drive to breathe where the airways open but their brains waking up because they're just not moving air at all now that'll come up in that table you'll see a central apnea index you'll see an obstructive apnea index you might see a a mixed apnea index which is a combination of the other two again perhaps a bit too much technical information at gp level and it should be mentioned in the front page of the report but perhaps if it's not you'll see it there And patients will come back to you and say, my CPAP machine says I've got all this central apnea. And you'll be thinking, oh, my God, what do I say to this patient? Well, you could look at their diagnostic report. Did they have central apnea in their diagnostic report? That might be useful. And that's where you'll find it. In that table often is a breakdown of positional too. Did the events happen in supine sleep or non-supine sleep? So often there's a bit of data there. Mm -hmm. That becomes a discussion point. And probably the only other table that, that may be of interest to GPs um, is along the lines of leg movements in sleep. So when people have restless leg syndrome, where they've got an uncomfortable feeling in their legs, they feel like they need to move their legs often in the evening when they're when they're when they're um, rested and, and still. And when it occurs in bed, obviously it affects sleep. But they can also kick their legs in sleep, and that's called periodic limb movements, and that's a cause of brain arousals and sleepiness. And and that's reflected in a table, a leg leg movement table, where it'll talk about PLM index or PLMI. Which is the severity of that periodic limb movement condition. When is the index
0: indicating a problem or not?
1: So, with periodic limb movements, often we regard more than 10 essentially as abnormal. But mind you, we have a fairly high tolerance of periodic limb movements before we start treatment in the sleep physician world, I think. It often is induced by other factors, medications, maybe sometimes CPAP, and we often don't treat it. We treat other sleep conditions mm-hmm. first before we attribute the PLMs as a problem. But, you know, people will say they kick their legs, and you can sometimes see it there in the data as well.
0: Now, that's been incredibly useful. Um, I know I've never looked at so much of this. I, I, I'm almost ashamed to say I'm a first-page reader and have often just not
1: looked at the second page at all. Look, I think the first page is the key, but I would encourage you people to start looking at the back page. Um, I think that's really, if you start to understand that and you show that to your patients, they'll get so much more out of the discussion. And um, I say that cautiously because I love to show that and the GPs haven't, so at least it gives me something to do with the patients. <laughs> but you can you can steal all my funder, do all that. That's all good.
0: Uh, look, I, I just find that uh, those sorts of conversations both increases my knowledge of the issue, but as a patient, I would also learn so much if I was taught uh, about exactly what went wrong with my sleep, so that's really important. And thank you for taking us through um, the sleep study. I wonder if there are other things we should be aware of.
1: I, I think that's the main thing um, in the in the sleep study. I, again, we just need to concentrate on the broader picture too of the patient. Yeah, I'm not sure I would take more out of it. Some with the sleep study report. I just really
0: thank you for sharing us uh, with us your knowledge and expertise and, and just breaking apart, uh, if you like, the mystery of page two. I, I'm certainly going to be able to look at it this time with a lot of interest and a lot less trepidation.
1: Perfect. Well, thanks, David. It's 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 not every day you get to talk about sleep studies to people that might actually want to hear about it. So, yeah, perfect.
0: (laughs) I I just value your teaching us because you are so right. Um, And this is a an area that we've never been taught formally and whatever little we have learned, we've gleaned and some of what we have gleaned may not be right. So I thank you for it. Thanks, David.